Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Forrester's CX Cast. This is Sam Stern, joined in studio by Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And this week, we have a very special guest that Jenny and I have been very excited to welcome into our studio. It is our former professor, who we've been very excited to welcome into the studio, Mina Kothunderaman, who is the founder and the chief strategist at Twig and Fish, aside from being a esteemed professor at Bentley University. Mina, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you both so much for having me here. <laughs> I'm really honored. Would love to start at the beginning with you. Well, not the literal beginning, but the beginning of your career and user experience. Uh, tell us, how did you get into this field? I actually have an undergraduate in MIS from the University of Ottawa. I'm a proud Canadian. And the University of Ottawa had a co-op program really excited to be a part of that co-op program uh, just because obviously co-op, you know, you sort of work and study at the same time. And it was wonderful because my first co-op program placement, I actually got put into a company called System House and they had one human factors engineer. (laughs) One. (laughs) In the whole company. They were a very big powerhouse consulting firm. And I ended up on a project where this woman, her name is Vanda McClelland. So I'll do a little shout out to Vanda because <laughs> she's awesome. But she basically needed some help doing what we now know as ethnography mm. or mm. the payphone, which was so <laughs> awesome. So yes, I am. Millennial there. listeners, a yeah. payphone is something you use before you had a mobile phone and you need to call someone from a different place. Yeah, we need a definition right there. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it was so exciting because we basically helped redesign the payphone. And it was a wonderful project where you're just looking at dialing methods. How do people, yeah. and again, for people who might not know, <laughs> people would jimmy the system, right? They would, you know, dial a number and let it ring three times. And that was a signal to the person receiving the call. You remember that? Yes. Mm -hmm. Just makes me laugh thinking about this because I have done this many times. Yes. Three times and then hang up. And then you know that person has reached safely somewhere, but you don't expend your... Your dime or quarter, dime or quarter, whatever right. time this is, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, so basically, I got very, very fascinated with that. I was so excited that I could learn a little bit about people. I thought, wow, this is so fascinating. What if we could learn about people and create better products and services for them? I ended up going back to this company because I loved working there, and again, just sort of to, started to build my interest in that, and stayed with the company after graduation, but really really wanted to dig deeper into it. And that led me south to the United States where I did my graduate work in Syracuse with a sort of a user focus, if you will, of studying people within that larger realm of what is now the iSchool. So it was so much fun just to be able to get into it. And from there on, it was smooth sailing where I was working, you know, heading up, you know, large teams with a greater understanding for who is actually speaking out for and on behalf of the user and did a lot of consulting work around the world and ultimately ended up in Boston. And I like staying agnostic, basically, in the domain just because it's been so helpful to be able to see how many domains can actually be inspired by one another. Well, I think we're, we're all lucky that you took that initial experience as ethnography was the piece that was interesting to you rather than payphones. Because <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a shorter career. Different trajectory. <laughs> well, I laugh because I'm, yeah. I'm the nerd that actually gets off the plane every time I go home to Canada and I put my bags down in front of the payphone and go click. And I'm like, nice. it's still here. Yeah, yeah. We did great. such an awesome job. <laughs> and it survived all the time. Yeah. Clearly an amazing design. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Call a spade a spade. So, yeah, that's nice. Well, and then second, that uh, I think it's fascinating. You know, you as a professor at Bentley, but you're still in full time practice, and your first 
interaction with this was in that kind of a program, right? A co-op program where you were working and in school at the same time, which is sort of the same model you're doing now as a professor. Exactly. I love being able to consult and take some of that knowledge into the classroom. Yeah. Keeping in mind at Bentley, as you both well know, that not everybody is a newbie. People right. have experience, they have their own wisdom that they've accumulated from even if it's their undergraduate program with a little bit of work experience or actually a sufficient and quite an, an amount of work experience. We have so many different varieties. And when people come and share those thoughts, it just, it's funny how it's an inspiration in and of itself. So I always smile at the students. I'm thinking to myself, thank you for being in the classroom because <laughs> it makes me think a little bit harder. Yeah. But it's also just vocalizing thought because I think sometimes if we actually don't speak out loud what we think, we don't do a good job of formulating it when we really need to say it mm. or to some situation that's going to be impactful. Yeah. And it's really, really been fabulous to be able to say things out loud. In a school environment, everybody is allowed to make mistakes yeah. and it's everybody's mm -hmm. forgiving, but it's where we should be exploring. I always laugh. I don't think I'm going to leave anytime soon because I really enjoy that part. So. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. I like that, that concept of as a professor, you get to explore these ideas in a safer space so that as a practitioner, you've sort of stress tested them and played out new ideas potentially, you know, it's sort of that, that concept of deliberate practice, right? You yeah. practice you're running through those scenarios so that when you get into work with your actual clients, you've had the run throughs and it wasn't on other clients, right? You don't have to learn as many lessons with your clients as you, you can in that safer setting. Exactly. And then there's also the people in class who will bring in similar issues that I've seen outside. And it's funny how we as a discipline, and not that the class is made up of only researchers, but people either are researchers or consumers of research. So they're in touch with research mm -hmm. in some way. And it's so amazing how so many of us have the same issues. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when they come into class and they want to share some of those details, the next thing you know, they're like, well, I don't know how often this happens to other people. <laughs> and I always love it when they start that way because I almost unequivocally want to say, uh, you're not alone. <laughs> Everyone in this room has probably had some experience similar My to this. My name is Mina right. and I have a problem. <laughs> like, <laughs> Hi, Mina. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting, but it's fun because people can actually share those yeah. points. And it's just hearing that, you know what, this is a really good approach or this is what mm -hmm. I've tried in the past. And then sometimes you have students who are really very well versed and they're simply coming to Bentley for a piece of paper. They'll be like, oh, this is another way to do this. Or if it's in, you know, government, this is a really good approach. Or if it's in medical and you're yeah. tied because you can't get to certain yeah. people, the next thing you know, that just starts yeah. to generate even more conversation. And that's one of the reasons we also like to do this is because there's so much to talk right. about on these topics and everyone has a different perspective. Oh, yeah. um, and everyone is still struggling also with articulating the value, with understanding the best practice in this specific situation. Yeah. So it really is a big opportunity to share. Even now, every now and then when I'm thinking about something, I'll be like, well, what did I learn in that class? Or, or I remember <laughs> that one example I'm that was this fringe so example, happy. right, with a special population. Right. And how did you address it? That's good to hear. It's good fun, though. There's always going to be technological issues. There's no doubt. But I think the fact that we as people are changing so rapidly, mm -hmm. we're the people to figure out. Like people make this more challenging. It's not yeah. the technology. So at any point in time when we can try to understand people or, you know, come away with a story where somebody feels genuinely, you know, emotionally touched mm. by something, it suddenly makes your world go round. And it yeah. gets very exciting. And anytime you can do that, I think for anybody in any job, you know, you come home to a really happy drink. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, so yeah, it's, it's very special. 
Yeah. We're lucky to be in this field. <laughs> yeah. I like how you brought that to the human level as well. Uh, that's something that we think about constantly. And there is all this new emerging technology and it's so easy to get caught up in, well, what can we do? Yeah. Right. Should we launch an app to make something more efficient? And often people forget that there's a human at the other end of that experience who mm. has specific needs or motivation or is looking for something out of that experience, which maybe isn't yeah. just this technology component. So that focus on the person is really key. It is very key. I have to tell you, I think that is a bit of a shortcoming that's happening nowadays more and more mm. with organizations where I think they're losing sight of that human. You can visibly see what happens when you tell a good story or when we do consulting work, we always make sure that our stakeholders are there in the field with us, not conducting the research, simply soaking it in and listening. Because when they can tell that story... You can tell how people in a room are impacted in a wonderful human way. We get excited by certain things. I was just at a fabulous conference in Budapest, Hungary, and uh, a call out to the Amuse conference and how beautifully it was organized. But they had people from all over Europe. And I know this, but it was sort of exciting to see it brought to the forefront, which is the UK.gov website has just blown out websites in all proportions in terms of taking the complexity of government information and mm. making it truly accessible to people, yeah. which, as you can imagine, government never easy. Uh-huh. And the, in this lovely presenter, her name is Kate, she had a small snippet and that video actually is on YouTube, if I'm not mistaken, of a woman named Anna. And it was beautiful where in like barely a minute and a half of her telling her story, how thankful she was that she could get sort of legal next of kin information, all the legality mm. set up in terms of her caring for her elderly mother. And it was interesting because Kate is presenting this information. She puts the video on and I kid you not, because I was more interested in the reaction of people because I know mm-hmm. what the video is going to say. Like yeah. I can hear it. Yeah. But you look around and people are suddenly looking up with their eyes. They're big. And then some of them are getting welled up with tears. That's what we need to reach into. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As researchers, that's the story we tell. Everybody asks about an ROI on research. To me and to my colleague Zarla, we talk about this all the time, is that there is an internal measurement. It's like a happiness quotient that measures because of doing good research. Because people have Hmm. a story to connect with. And that human story is really invaluable. And it's an anchor and it gives you that beacon and that ability to move forward and drive towards something. Any good designer needs one good story and they go off in 15 different directions with amazing ideas and then they can't shut up because they've just got all the stuff <laughs> yeah. going. So inspired by it. <laughs> it is, but that's yeah. what it should be, right? Because then you have something driving it. You know, that idea of bringing the stakeholder along and, and so in person observing it, I think that epiphany is easier for a human. It's more possible. But then we don't want sort of four rows of people up at the glass looking in the interview or, you know, crowding around and sort of spooking the person that we're doing the research with. So how do you think about that where we'd love for everyone to have this epiphany in real time, you know, sort of observing this very human back and forth that's the research versus, well, we want more people to have the epiphany. So are there ways to share this feeling, these insights in a way that makes it maybe not as visceral as in person, but almost as good? It's a very important question right now, especially in our field, the way things are. I think the one way you can really do a better job of that is to stress a research philosophy and stress more credible practice. So research philosophy 
Let's start with that one because everybody should know why it is that they're doing research. Like, what are you ultimately trying to get out of this? And you should know what's going into it. Like, what are your sort of agendas? And you should know what you expect for the outputs. If you set that up and you sort of understand right off the bat that this is how we're going to approach research and there's clarity to that, then I think actually what helps in terms of the credible practice then is a structured approach, making sure that there's something that's repeatable that people can partake of, but that there is availability for creativity Mm. within each Mm -hmm. little step. And if we have that all well packaged up so it makes sense, the first time you might have to shepherd somebody through and say, hey, Sam, come on, we're going to go out. This is how we're going to do things. Sam might not know what's going on, but that's okay because that's my job to show you that right. there is a way right. to do this. And the second time, Sam's going to sort of, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're like, this is the stage where we actually put the protocol together. Got it. I know what we're doing right now. And the more, actually, it doesn't really take a lot of times, the more Sam starts to see as a stakeholder that he is now part of that story gathering and that his knowledge is so important to bring to the table because it's important for Sam to hear these stories because, gosh, he knows his domain really well. It's also important for me to hear these stories because I know research really well. Mm. And if we put mm-hmm. that together, then we end up with the best holistic aspect of the stories that we're capturing. Mm. And we also keep each other honest because mm-hmm. the times when researchers sort of run away in the field on their own and they're doing it solo, I don't even want to know. Like, what You know how tiring it is to go yeah. to do research. It's a very tiring task to go out and say, do ethnography for a full day and take notes and then have to compile your notes and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. It's exhausting. What happens if you start to add in some color? That can actually devalue what we're finding. So we have to be cautious, but make sure that there is structure to what we're presenting so that it brings that credibility and it doesn't show Mm -hmm. that it's just some haphazard approach. Yeah, that's interesting. Or just an opinion, too, because I feel like that's often the case, especially when people view this as being qualitative and not quantitative. Yeah. Like, well, great, this is qualitative. It adds some color, some emotional pull, but like, where's the grit behind it? Is it something we actually get behind? So qualitative research by nature is interpretive. There is a meta level of information Mm. that we are going after. But if all of us come back with similar findings, because independently we should do our review and then together... And it's important, again, as part of that structure, um, and I'm happy to go through the five phases, you know, that we use a very structured five phases. But independently, if we can actually show that there is a way to get our individual feedback and then get our group feedback, we'll call each other out. I'll be like, hey, Jenny, what do you think about this? And you'll be like, you know what, Mina? I didn't actually hear the story the same Mm -hmm. way. Yeah. Because this is what I heard. Sam will say, yeah, I agree more with Jenny. Mina might say, oh, okay, that's interesting because I heard it this way. Mm -hmm. But that's for us to then discuss and it actually diffuses those moments. That's that's really interesting. And I definitely want to hear about the the five phases, but I just, that idea of positioning it to the stakeholders in a different way. That was You were just articulating that well, which I had not been thinking about. I've been thinking about, okay, we want to get you there so you feel the visceral connection, so you have the change of mind. But actually, the story to tell them is you come along because you will see it with your lens, your expertise. You will have a different perspective that will strengthen the overall insights we can gain from this interview. We get more out of the research by having you there. Mm-hmm. That is... First of all, if I'm a stakeholder, I want that story yeah. told to me, right? Like that's a story I, I can internalize, be like, that's right. I'm going like, to add value here, that. right? Mm-hmm. She's not, I'm not going there to get my mind changed. I'm going there to help the research be better. Yeah. That's such a different framing of it that's more powerful, that, more likely to get them to go with you, right? 
to sort of respond to that, in my particular situation, I'm an external consultant. If I just do the work, run away, I have all the intelligence in my head. I have all the stories in my head. That's not going to benefit you. And as you both well know as researchers as well, the journey is actually more important than the the net destination. Yeah. Um, you have to know what type of stories were delivered and were shared under what circumstances, possibly in a context. You also need to know how that was sort of uh, discussed and deconstructed and then analyzed um, when you're looking at all your data. Yeah. You also know that if you're going down a path, you might take a left turn. You might come back because actually that left turn sort of hit a dead end. And then you might go straight and then you might go, no, let's go back like five steps. Mm-hmm. Because then there's actually this path that's really amazing. I always like to visualize this like like the family circus cartoon <laughs> when the mom asks the kid, like, did you come straight home? And the kid <laughs> goes, oh, yeah, I did. And then they show you the drawing of him going over the fence and under the fence and <laughs> under and digging a hole and going yeah. in and swinging on the swings for five minutes and then coming back <laughs> mm-hmm. to the fence. And and it's funny, but that's how I see research. Yeah. It's, it's a path that you go up and down on and you don't know how you're going to end up always, but sometimes you're going to end up in a place. But if as a stakeholder, you are not privy to those discussions mm. and those adventures, if I may use that word, you're not going to understand why something wasn't investigated. But if you're there and you're present and you go up and down every journey and you know why the swings were abandoned because they were wet and you know why it was hard to dig a hole because there wasn't a shovel, you get all that stuff. The next thing you know, that person's already ready to figure out how to apply this stuff forward. Yeah, It almost spells itself out. And even better in our situation, again, our being external consultants, Mm -hmm. even better is if a question comes up from the team, the stakeholder is positioned to answer it and not us, which is really fabulous. We want to empower them to know the value of research and know how to actually infuse it internally then. Uh, We talk with a lot of teams that are starting to build up and they say, you know, do we use external? Should we hire internal? What skill sets do we look for? And so I'm curious when you are thinking from that external point of view, how do you make sure that they are connected and that they understand how you got there and what the conclusion is that they can then own it? Great question. So we have, um, and I'm happy to share this with you guys in terms of a framework that we've put together. Um, With this framework, what has been so helpful is is that we look at basically uh, research in terms of inputs and outputs. If we focus on the output side, that one vector helps us understand two very sort of large endpoints. One is, are you looking for the research to inspire people or are you looking for the research to just inform the product? And it's really important for us to understand that distinction. As you can imagine, the right-hand side tends to happen more often. Why? Because it's quickly measurable. You can get quick results on things. It's quick. But the left-hand side takes a bit more of a hit because it's in-depth. It's often more in context. You're learning about people. And let's face it, people are not very easy to measure. So often when we're looking at bringing that stakeholder along, it's not like just pointed hits of data. You need to get a very holistic sense of data. There's a lot of emotional, there's attitudinal, there's uh, preferential, there's behavioral. There's so many different types of data that we're actually trying to take away at that point in time, aptitudinal. All of this stuff has to be told within the realm of one story. So for us to try and just draw out one point here or there, it's not going to be as effective. But when they are with us and along the way, we find that they actually can hear the sort of like the tapestry, if you will. 
Mm-hmm. Right. of that entire set of information. Right. It's mm-hmm. like there's a big weave going on and we want to really appreciate, oh, well, this sort of depends on this and this information depends on that. And it, it starts to come together in a much richer context than if we were to just say, you know, five out of seven people said right. this, <laughs> which has a place and a yeah. time, not, yeah. to, not to devalue that. But when you're talking about people, it's not just about five out of seven. Right. It's about really understanding those details more. And also, I should say that when we are doing analysis, we're also thinking about the form factor that we're going to be giving them information in. Mm -hmm. Um, So often when we do research, we find that people are just ready to put that PowerPoint presentation together. (laughs) Oh, how we love PowerPoint. (laughs) But sometimes that's not the right vehicle. That's not going to help them. In fact, it needs to be a big poster that stares them in the face every day. Or it needs to be a little keychain on the table. And they can access the information about the people that they studied. Every portion of doing research should be an experience in and of itself. So that there's something that people feel like they partook Mm -hmm. of and that they can take away. I also had a follow-up to what you just mentioned on those scales, uh, which is that it sounds different language. And so and so maybe this isn't a right correlation, but the difference between thinking of exploratory research versus descriptive research and validation research. um, Is that a fair comparison to those endpoints? It it is. You know, actually... Mm -hmm. um, if I'm not mistaken, at Forrester, I think it was Vidya Drago yeah. mm-hmm. yep. who did an article. Hi, Vidya. <laughs> <laughs> Call her out. She did an article and it alluded to some of the stuff, but it didn't go into quite as much depth as what we've gone into. So our five phases, if I start there and I'll just sort of delve into that first phase in a little bit more detail, but our five phases are meant to offer structure to doing research so that somebody who is not familiar with research, can actually start to communicate with us and understand where we are in the actual Mm. process of doing research. Mm -hmm. So the five phases are very simple. The first one is align. Our goal is to really align everybody. Um, In our line of work, we don't just accept a research question or an RFP by way of written word. Because a lot of times when people write questions, they don't really know what it is they're exactly going Mm -hmm. after. Therefore, it's really important for them to vocalize yeah. Those details. Yeah. And we want to make sure that they can do that. So we always focus on aligning not only our expectations to theirs so that we make sure that we understand what the research ask is, yeah. but also internally, does everybody understand what they want to do? Right. And do you know what information you're sitting on? Because a lot of times organizations are sitting on so much information right. that they right. don't use. Do you also know how much of it is based on assumption? You have to be very careful about that. And then also, what is your confidence in that knowledge? So sometimes people will say, oh, well, you know, this is how we've done things. And, you know, I have very high confidence in it. What is that confidence actually based on? I just know. And then you'll hear somebody in the group pipe up going, you know, I've never really understood that. But you want to expose all of that, not in a bad way, but in a way that you just get everything out. And guess what? If everybody goes, we have high confidence in it and we all agree, we're not trying to shake your belief. We're just trying to understand how aligned are you and how comfortable are you with this information. Mm-hmm. So that's right. align. I love that. It's like using the user research methods on on the stakeholders almost, right? right? To moderate a session to get yeah. to get let everyone feel like it's a safe space to say to what they're trying to do. How what do they you know, know that the emperor is wearing know. clothes, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's actually actually I see a naked emperor. Exactly. So he's we know he's not butt naked. I yeah. know that's what that was my answer. But no, it's it's seriously so important because the other half of it that we have heard repeatedly, sort of a, a meta level of finding from doing this so many times, is that a lot of times we hear from stakeholders, you know what, we're really glad you took us through this process because 
we actually don't know how to communicate with researchers. We don't know what it is they do. Therefore, we don't know how to give them stuff. Mm. So to be empathic towards the people giving you the questions is equally important. So you have to keep all people in mind, which is also why we don't call it user research. It's just research. Mm. It's research on humans because you don't know which human Mm -hmm. you're talking to at which point in time. So basically at that align phase, so phase one align, we actually do take all of their questions and we plot it across this two by two framework called the incredible framework um, that I can share the article for. But it's been very helpful because what it does is it creates that level of transparency, but also structure. Mm. So it's not just like, oh, well, (laughs) Mina and Zarla think this is a great idea. It has nothing to do with Mina and Zarla. It's now projected onto a two by two which is so simple to understand, but visualizes exactly where exploratory is, where discovery might be, where we're actually doing validation and why. Why is it that we're doing definition and ideating here? Mm -hmm. And it's based on their questions because you want to understand the spirit behind their questions. So is it fair to say that, you know, when they bring you in before the alignment work, the dot on the two by two might be in one quadrant or one part of one quadrant, but after that conversation, there's a good chance you're moving it to somewhere else based on the greater alignment you now have. Absolutely. Think about the number of times you've been in validation research, air quotes here, mm-hmm. and you're asking behavioral questions. Yeah. Right? It's not user testing. That Actually, I will say that term drives me a bit bonkers. <laughs> oh. no, no users are being tested here. It's all about the product. Right. So why are we asking behavioral questions in the middle of product testing? <laughs> product testing really should be, does it work or not? Right. Does it fit your mental model or not? Yes or no? Quite binary. Yeah. But when we start to pepper it with, oh, well, let's pretend that you weren't here and let's, what do you do at home? Or how do you handle this at work when you're, no, you can't do that because now you're actually confusing the person. And so when we actually say, oh, people do things differently than what they say, well, it's because we're not asking them the question the right way. Right. We're not giving them a fair platform to articulate themselves. And therefore we're actually making it quite unfair for them. And yet we're expecting them to shoot us a silver bullet and we're going to catch it. So we want to be really careful about that. And sort of, as I mentioned, that vector that's so important is understand people questions separately than product questions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in that phase one, our goal is to organize the questions. And if I can say this, and if, if this makes sense, like visually, you're basically putting it against a two by two and doing a simple affinity diagram on that two by two, which questions sort of cluster together nicely, mm. which ones fit together nicely. And then you can say, oh, look, Jenny, we have a cluster on the top left hand side. That's exploratory research because of the way the vectors have been defined. Mm-hmm. And here's a problem. I need this all done by next week. So Jenny is going to right away say, well, here's the challenge. Let's learn a little bit about this two by two. Well, we know that if it's going to be about the people, it's a lot of times it's in context. Not always, but a lot of times it is. Mm -hmm. We also know that the dynamic is going to be one-on-one because we need rich information about Mm -hmm. somebody. We know these details that we also know is going to either drive up the budget or drive up the time, Mm -hmm. right? right? Which are going to both be high. So in which case that's not going to be feasible in a week. Most stakeholders don't have that level of intel mm-hmm. to understand why we've said no before. Right. So let's put it out there visually and say left-hand side, more budget, more time. Right. But everything you want is there. So let's exactly. move forward. But mm-hmm. here's the deal is if they can't do it now, then they can plan for it. This basically gives them a research roadmap. And that's why we always start with this in a line. Because then it's very obvious to them, wow, all of our questions are up here. So if we start in 
definition in the bottom and we start to ideate because how many times have you seen where somebody just suddenly jumps into something and goes, we've got to come up with like some new options yeah. for this, right? right? You just jump right into it. If you start there without knowing your behavioral information, that's a bit dicey. However, mm. if you choose to do that as an organization, that is your choice. Right. That, that's your prerogative. Mm -hmm. Right. But don't expect us to be able to go and run research in less than a week in context, get you meaningful information that you can use. So we're going to set the expectation and we're going to, in a nice way, educate you on what you need so that you can plan forward. Because the first time you miss out on the planning, we understand. The second time, we're a little forgiving. The third time, I'm going to look at you and go, yo, you need mm -hmm. to go and take some scheduling classes because <laughs> you're not good at this. <laughs> yeah. So you have to also stand up for the credibility of the research and not be willing to fall over on that. Yeah. Once we have phase one done, so you can imagine a whole bunch of study scopes and a study scope has been selected. It doesn't mean that it's only one study scope in one quadrant. It can be a very intelligent thread of study scopes. But the key is, you know that, okay, we're going to start with behavior and then end up in product. Because we always want to be inspired by behavior before we go and apply that inspiration to our product. So we take that then and say, okay, now we look at the rest of our phases, which is two through five. Number two is called plan. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big one, right? It's important. You know, it's so important. <laughs> but it's pretty straightforward. And we mm -hmm. try to go with single words because it's gen easy for people to sort yep. of yep. latch on to. But plan, the most important thing is what? You're creating a protocol. You're really thinking about your screener, your recruiting strategies, giving yourself enough time for that. As soon as you create your protocol, you're also coming up with a note-taking protocol. We just mm, talked about having yeah. stakeholders in the field. And a lot of times they don't know how to take notes. They don't know what to observe. Yeah. We do this all the time, but it's actually very hard for people who don't do this all the time. So we coach mm. them and say, here's what you're going to do. And guess what? You need to memorize the protocol. You're not going to be asking any questions, but you need to know what the spirit is behind the question. So you then know what to listen for. Mm-hmm. So you start to organize your thoughts that way. And then the last thing we do in plan is an orientation session. And the orientation session actually copiously walks through with the stakeholders and anybody who's coming out into the field, especially all the details of the protocol, how note-taking is going to happen and how debriefing is going to happen. Because mm. as soon as we get into the field, after each session, there's a very structured debrief. Again, it's not haphazard, mm -hmm. it's very structured. And this is all put into a timeline. I think you guys will remember how anal I like to be about time. <laughs> yes. So everything goes into... many of those. Very helpful though. <laughs> but it's helpful, right? Yes. Because yeah. everybody else has got their own stuff to take care of too. Mm -hmm. So we've got to find a way to fit in nicely right. into people's worlds. Right. We can't be orthogonal. We have to integrate. So in plan, basically, all we're doing is really organizing everybody. We're getting the troops corralled and ready to go. Because then if you do a good job in plan... Phase three is gather. Mm -hmm. Surprise. Yeah, Going right. out and doing your research, right? In whatever shape or form it is, whether it's remote, whether it's, you know, just observation, whatever it is. And notice I'm not leading with method. I have not mentioned method at all. And the reason is, is because we have tried to deconstruct that word method into the details. A method actually is really important because in an interview, I could do a collage. In an interview, I could also body storm. Does that not make it an interview anymore? So why not just mm -hmm. deconstruct it into the activities you're going to do? So in Gather, what we do is walk through our protocol 
And our protocol, I will just, I think, call this out as a slight differentiator as well, is in the protocol, what we do is we make sure that it's really detailed in terms of just getting Jenny to articulate. So a lot of times it's activities. It's actually less talking and more doing. Mm. Because the moment I have Jenny actually write down a calendar, I give her a little worksheet because I've planned this worksheet mm-hmm. out. And I say, Jenny, go ahead and fill this out. I want to learn all about you and your grocery shopping habits. And she writes it all down. And Jenny's laughing, so I'm a little concerned <laughs> about that question. I was just discussing how the best app to do to create grocery shopping list yesterday. So this oh, is really? a very timely question. I would love some help on it. <laughs> Thank you. I love it. I, I love it. What <laughs> app do you use? I know. <laughs> But he's going to use Grocery IQ, but I That's guess it's no longer available in the app store, oh, really? so I can't download it. You're not know. me. Oh, wow. No. Oh. So there's an opportunity for someone out there to create something similar well, based on this But think this about one. it. So if I want to learn about mm-hmm. that and you fill that sheet out and I now go, Jenny, tell me about your grocery shopping habits. It's a little bit easier because she's got everything written out. Yeah. She's had a chance mm-hmm. to. Yes. Put her thoughts together. Right. Because guess what? She might actually be thinking about that big deliverable that's due at the end of the week. And really, she's not thinking about grocery shopping right right now. So I need to allow her that little moment of time. But it gives her that sense of, oh, I I, I got, yeah, I got this. Okay, I got Mm -hmm. this. So I'm not making her nervous because the question's about, you know, Sam, tell me about your last grocery shopping trip. Yeah, my last grocery shopping trip. Mm. What did I do? And it's this moment of, uh, which <laughs> story do you want to hear? But right. this just gives you, your quiet little time, a chance to pull your thoughts together. <laughs> so we find that our protocols are heavy in activity and less in conversation in terms of me asking questions. It shouldn't become an interrogation. Mm-hmm. It should become, I just want to learn about you. <laughs> That's a smart idea, too, because everyone is going to articulate differently, right? And different things will trigger different ideas or memories. Some people might want to think first. Some people like to talk out loud to process everything from the get-go. So that's smart. You can kind of see what works for each person. At a meta level in class, remember, we always used to talk about, what do you do with the quiet person? What do you do with the person Mm -hmm. who talks too much? Right? Guess what? Really are no quiet people. They just... They actually communicate differently. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Right? Yes. There really are no loud people. They just communicate differently. Yeah. So all you have to do is facilitate that discussion. But if everybody has a chance to write things down, A, it diffuses the group think right away. So think about that if it's a group situation. Yeah. Or B, it still gives them a chance to just pull their thoughts together. Right. And maybe they don't write stuff down because they're a, they're a talker. Right. It's okay, but they still had a chance to think about what they want to say. Yeah. Right. So that's phase three. After each break in phrase three, we actually get a chance to debrief. And what we do is we actually have post-it notes that are color-coded and we say, okay, Sam, we just met with so-and-so. They've told us about their online collaboration methods and how they actually remotely collaborate with employees. Let's sit down wherever it is. It could be in the middle of the Boston Commons. It could be at the airport. It could be at a bar with a drink in your hand. Get out those post-it notes and write down your top 20 thoughts right now, Hmm. immediately. And we put that aside. And what that does is when it comes time for Sam to be able to retell his story in analysis, he just has to look at his 20 post-it notes and it's all going to come tumbling back. Yeah, that's great. So that is phase three gather, phase four analyze. You're going to take all the data. And this is actually where I always call out my colleague, Sarah Ludin. She's absolutely brilliant. She has some of the best approaches for deconstructing frameworks in terms of analysis frameworks and sort of taking data and making it sort of tear apart and then rebuild itself. 
So we basically do that and we, we have a fun little exercise called shoeless analysis where we have people literally take their shoes off, white socks, come on in, join us. <laughs> I was and wondering what that name I know. was referring to. <laughs> going to check okay, the color of my socks. I know. <laughs> Good, not white. Not, not white. white, you're not allowed in. <laughs> yeah. so got to be clean, at least nicely laundered. But the deal is to sort of disarm people and to let them come in, sit on the floor, not your typical round the table kind yeah. of discussion, but tell stories and then work in little groups because all the people that were in the field with us are now in this session. And it's again, very structured. Mm. And then finally, the last phase, no big surprise, is called apply. And we intentionally don't call it report because it's really taking the mm, research that's good. and moving yeah. it forward. Yeah. How are we going to actually use this? Yeah. Because I can't tell you how many times we have heard research projects and stories over and over again where they're like, yeah, we did that research, but it's somewhere. We don't know what the hell happened to it. <laughs> yeah. We hear yeah. that all the time. It's yeah. like, we created this journey map, but then we rolled it up and never saw it again. Or we yeah. have personas, but we don't know where they are. Yeah. I love that switch that you made in yeah. that terminology. It really yeah. does. Intentionally. And then also what we do is we plan for who actually is going to do the readout. We mm-hmm. always like to do the discussion on the approach. So we really stress what we brought to the table. And then we actually like our client to do the final mm. So they actually talk about the stories and the findings. And we obviously are right there with them. So it's not like we're trying to throw them under the bus or anything. But when they can vocalize it, it's back to that whole concept of vocalizing it. And when stuff comes at them, they feel empowered to answer it. Oh, that's great. I mean, Those are our five phases. To be able to communicate something, you have to know it at a much deeper level than if you're just sort of along for the ride. But if you're going to be the one on the hook for telling the story to others... Your stakeholder then has to get to a much better level of understanding. We also say this because often research is put on the research team or often the researcher of one, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, which is unfortunate, but it does happen still. And what happens is it becomes a burden for that one person. It's actually very low meaning in putting that burden on one person. It actually has to be distributed Mm. so that everybody owns that story, that everybody distributes and socializes that story because everybody should be anchored in that story. So it's not just the researcher's responsibility. They should see it through and make sure that there's no loose ends, that everything is well done and that's credible. There's no biases. There's no assumptions. Everything has been brought the right way. But when it comes to socializing it, it's on everybody. Well, Mina, thank you. So much for joining us in studio. We really appreciate it. Uh, This was a lot of fun. Listeners, we've got some links in the podcast show notes to uh, some of the resources Mina alluded to. Uh, We'll post links to a couple of relevant Forrester reports as well. And thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next week on CXCast. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of CXCast. And remember, your customer's perception is your customer experience reality. (laughs) 